Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. I'm here today with Frank Muller. Frank has worked in climate policy since the late 1980s, developing innovative approaches to carbon pricing, renewable energy and sustainable transport. He has worked in policy in a number of different governments. He directed policy research at the University of Maryland Center for Global Change in the 1990s. He's worked with the US federal and state governments in developing countries. And he's headed climate change and sustainable development in the New South Wales Premier's Department. More recently, he served two terms as the Commissioner of Australia's National Transport Commission and nine years as a non-executive director of the leading consumer organisation Choice, which many of you would be familiar with. He has a Master's in Public Administration from Harvard and he's got a Bachelor of Science from the ANU in Canberra. Frank, it's lovely to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Frank, I would like to start by asking you a question we ask all our guests, which is if you could wave a magic wand, what would Australia look and feel like in 20 years' time? As we're talking about climate, we'd hope we don't see all our east coast forests burn and we don't lose the barrier reef. Today we get on top of the problem. On top of that, I'm hoping, of course, it will be a healthier society that we have and hopefully there'll be a lot less air pollution and we will have got on top of uh, COVID. It'll be, I hope, a, a fairer society, one where people have jobs, but they're not jobs that are so so vulnerable. We're seeing so many people in COVID who are living in these very precarious employment situations. I hope it's a society in which, as we've restructured the energy system and parts of the economy, power is distributed somewhat more evenly than has become the case, both within business, that it's, we're not seeing the concentrations of ownership that, that's clearly one break on economic growth and innovation in many countries, but we're also seeing, I think, a redressing of the balance between employees and employers. And I think, really, we want a very prosperous economy, we want Australia to have a diverse economic base, but we also, I think, don't want the economy to be our master, it should be our servant. And we need to rethink how we talk about the economy. So that's the case. Very interesting. And I'm sure we'll pick up on some of those bits and pieces through the conversation as well. What are you working on at the moment, Frank? You've done so many different things. Yeah, look, a, a few different things. I recently was the lead author of a paper on carbon border adjustments, which is this idea that Europeans have introduced and, and will probably proceed with of imposing a charge on carbon intensive imports to level the playing field between overseas production and their own domestic production where they're imposing a carbon price. This is something I've worked on right back to the 1990s in Washington. Indeed, we wrote a big paper for the Swiss government in the mid-1990s with a colleague. It's something when John Howard was citing competitiveness as a reason for not 
ratifying the Kyoto Protocol. We, we put a paper saying, well, uh, carbon border adjustment is one way Australia could deal with that problem, just as Europe is now. So that's one thing I'm working on. Uh, a second thing is at a more sort of local level, I was on the south coast at a place in Bermagui on New Year's Eve two years ago and had to evacuate and very personally experienced the trauma of the fires. And luckily, we, we didn't lose our house. I bet nearby Cabago did. And I've been working with a group of people in Cabago who are trying to chart a course to that town becoming more resilient and having an energy system that can survive fires and can survive the increasing number of days where the grid may be turned off because of extreme bushfire weather and the fear of sparking fires from the power lines. We got a grant through a consulting firm to develop a microgrid proposal for Cabago. And I've been working very closely with a few other people in Cabago on that idea and other ways of improving energy resilience in the town and the hinterland. Just briefly, I've been focusing a little bit on methane emissions because people, I think, don't understand it's a very tactical part of climate uh, policy, but those who follow it think of methane as being 28 times more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Uh, but that's over a 100-year time frame. We don't have 100 years. It's uh, become, as many jurisdictions have declared, an emergency, and we need to act quickly and act quickly to change the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Over a 20-year time horizon, methane's 80 times uh, worse than carbon dioxide. But the good news is that it only lasts in the atmosphere up to about 10 years. If you reduce emissions of methane, you improve the atmosphere much more quickly than taking action on CO2. Now, we absolutely have to focus on CO2, but methane needs more attention for that reason. And then finally, I, I keep a, a strong watching brief on transport policy as it's an area I've, I've worked in recently. There's going to be so much for us to unpack and talk about because these are all such interesting and important areas and I, I might just take a few of them by turn. And obviously these are just the things you're working on now, not some of the many that you've, you've talked about, so I know we could talk for a long time. Talking about the bushfires, you talked about that first-hand experience of the trauma and then the reaction of the community, thinking about two questions. One is resilience. If this happens again, assuming it happens again, how can we be better prepared? Which is obviously a conversation that many communities who've been impacted by really severe adverse weather events recently have been thinking about, not just in Australia, but We've certainly heard about a number of other countries in the region where they've been impacted. But the fire is very present for Australians. So in addition to the resilience, what kind of conversations are you seeing happen in communities who've been affected by bushfire? What kind of things are different in the way that communities are coming together or organising or what are they asking for in ways that might be different to, say, five years ago? I think the trauma for the people directly affected remains very dominant. And 
in some ways, it's easier for someone like me who um, evacuated and, and actually, because I'm living, you know, between Sydney and the South Coast, I had somewhere else to go, ultimately. It's hard for me to fully capture the depth of the problems. And I, I do think it highlights, though, an issue that we haven't grappled with in Australia. That for a lot of people, the trauma continued because it was so hard to deal with government. A lot of people felt like they spent uh, so much of the last year or two writing submissions or trying to deal with insurance companies, dealing with how to get grants. And I think the normal bureaucratic way of dealing with a situation like this is not adequate. Just a simple example, I know of people who have a fund that was set up to raise donations from people out there in the community for projects locally, so that it was a source independent of just the major public and foundation sources. Yet they quickly ran up against a roadblock that in a small local area, satisfying the tax office's notion of what is a charitable foundation and should be given deductible gift recipient status was impossible and they just didn't even bother. They weren't the kind of people in, in the town that were considered sufficiently respectable or professional status to provide the guarantee for setting up that kind of body. But I feel fairly angry about this. I mean, the tax office and the government, the ministers should have just said, you go down there and make this happen. They shouldn't have to worry about navigating all of that. And similarly, I think a process of accepting grants on a competitive basis, it just doesn't work very well in this kind of situation. There should be at least a lot more support for communities to prepare and develop their proposals. I, I think that's one of the kind of issues that's come out of it for me. But within the community itself, it's undoubtedly the case that there's a very strong, I think, coming together and a strong sense of community. And while there are still people who will say, look, we should burn the national parks because if we don't, they'll burn us. I think most people have come to realise that this is related to climate change and we have to tackle that. And the resilience strategies are, so, are, are about better preparing for these events, but also making the shift to a low emission economy. And it's so interesting that what you're describing in the project does both of those things. So you're talking about being more resilient so that if there's another fire or another kind of catastrophic situation and you're cut off, you've got power there locally, but also it's renewable power. So tell us a little bit more about that project and are you aware of others that are emerging in small communities around Australia as well? There are proposals all over the country and Malakuta, uh, which was badly affected, in fact, they got support for uh, a battery with a solar farm, but they've got a unique situation that they have a lot of blackouts anyway because they have such a long skinny line to Millicuta. But just in New South Wales and the South Coast, there's there's a project funded through ANU looking at about eight potential sites around Europe and Alishire. And there's ours in um, in Cabago. Um, and the basic idea is uh, that you have a battery you have a solar farm and you have the ability to island the, the town 
from the rest of the grid if the grid goes down so that you can keep power in the town. The battery and solar farm won't keep you going so long, especially if there's very smoky fires. So it may also involve a diesel backup that would hopefully be used very rarely and very a short period. But that you can only really do for a town. So then you're looking at more remote area power systems, as they're called, for surrounding areas, whether they're dairy farms or small settlements, localities. But the bottom line is you want to start by building back efficiently. In Australia, we tend to neglect in a big way energy efficiency, and energy efficiency is always the cheapest way of um, not only reducing emissions, but can reduce your power bills. We have a lot of discussion in Australia. For example, I could remember this classic when Tony Abbott went into Parliament and bemoaned the situation where someone had given his power bill and it had gone through the roof. And he went into great length about how this was a terrible example of uh, what putting up power prices with carbon taxes and things. Well, if anyone actually looked more closely at the bill, it had gone up because the consumption had gone up. They were using a lot more for whatever reason. Um, this tells you what matters to people is bills, not prices. Prices are important, but it, bills are what matter. And if we can help people achieve the same comfort, the same energy services, using less electricity, that's a win-win but we're not very good at that in Australia. And certainly in building back after the fires, there's lots of opportunities to do that. I know we've had some interesting conversations with people specifically about energy efficiency, and we've talked about the fact that it's very expensive to convert an older building into a more energy efficient building. It's much cheaper to, if you're building from scratch, and I hadn't thought about the fact that there is that opportunity, obviously with the very unfortunate loss of property to make sure that the new buildings have all those features, how much more pleasant life can be if you're living in a home that's properly insulated and well-designed. Can I just ask a, a basic question? When you say solar farm, what does that look like? Is that a bunch of solar panels in a row on a piece of land? Yes. Obviously, you would also try and maximise rooftop solar within the town, but the uh, ground-mounted systems, so they're on a supporting structure in a row, they might be tracking the sun or they may not be, depends on the situation. Anyone who's driven from Canberra south will have seen, seen them, there's quite a few in and around Canberra because the ACT government has been so proactive on this, but I think more and more you're seeing them around Australia. And just for people who might not be aware, my understanding is that the ACT now 100% of their power is derived from renewable sources. That's right. When we say that, you need to understand that it, it may not be the actual electrons, but they have made arrangements to purchase electricity, uh, which may be generated at a wind farm in South Australia. And their purchases account for more than their consumption. People often think of South Australia as 
leading the way, and, and they have. In terms of how they responded to the situation they found themselves in. When Jay Weatherall was Premier, he really took stock of the situation and made some very good moves. But the fact that South Australia has such a high amount of wind and now increasingly solar comes back to a number of measures uh, that involve actions by people in other states. But the big driver, of course, was the Rudd and Gillard government's renewable energy target, which required retailers to source a certain share of their electricity from renewable generators, but they could be anywhere in the country. So and South Australia was a very good place to build wind farms. You also talked about the paper that you'd written on the carbon border adjustment, and, and you did give a bit of insight into this. This is the idea that Australian products, if they don't have uh, a cost built into them to cost carbon and carbon emissions and equivalent emissions, we talked about methane, there are some others. If we don't have that price, then other countries who have priced carbon are going to say on the way through, we're going to just pop that price on for you anyway. Yeah, essentially it's like that. These things can be designed in a number of different ways. But in the case of the European Union, they have an emissions trading scheme which puts a price on carbon. However, similar to what was done with the Rudd proposal and the Gillard, the carbon price that was adopted, for heavy industry, they get free allowances. So the way an emissions trading scheme works is that you have to have a permit or an allowance to release carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And ideally, you should buy those. The government would auction them or you could buy them from another source that's selling them in the secondary market. And that imposes a price um, on carbon. So what the Europeans are requiring is that people who bring products into the country, and it's just a small number of very energy-intensive products where this is proposed, would have to buy a certificate with the same price so that it just levels the playing field. But when we proposed this for Australia years ago, you look at it a different way, and that is that we were hearing the argument that we couldn't have a carbon price in Australia because it would kill our aluminium exports. Our steel industry would suffer. And so we were proposing a scheme then where the exports would get a rebate of the carbon price that had been paid, but only for the exports. So the steel, the aluminium that was consumed domestically, you'd have the carbon price there, which is essential so that we make the kind of shifts in consumption patterns that will get us to a, a safe climate. It makes sense to use timber in construction because it's low carbon or even storing carbon rather than steel, while the price signal is an incentive for doing that. Whereas if you exempt these industries, you don't get those kinds of shifts. So essentially, the Europeans have had their emissions trading scheme for a long time now. And in electricity, they initially got their permits, but they have to buy them. And so the price flows through to the price of electricity. They've very significantly reduced their emissions 
from electricity and they've got a lot further to go, but they have reduced them. Industry where the permits have been free has increased its emission. It hasn't contributed to our common task of moving towards net zero. And that's what this is about. This is interesting because I think one of the things that I've seen looking historically is that you often have these situations where leading up to a potential change, you have industry saying, we can't. I'm thinking, for example, of removing lead from petrol. We don't have the technology, we, we, we can't do it. And then there's a lead up period. So in the meantime, people are hoping that the change won't come, but getting ready in case it does. And then often at the point it, it does happen, there's this sort of massive release of innovation that's been bubbling along in the background. And suddenly we come up with all these technical solutions. And it's interesting because sometimes in conversations I have people say, we'll wait for the technology and then when it gets cheaper, we'll adopt it. But what you're articulating really clearly is that these sorts of schemes are designed so that you're putting the incentives in place so that they focus their research and development and investment on technology that's going to solve these specific issues. And there's actually lots and lots of other kinds of examples where you've got a big structural change and then people come up with a technical solution and are able to overcome that. And it's interesting talking about the European experience of how there has been success in reducing emissions in some areas and not in other areas. And presumably it's not necessarily a function that there just is technology in one area and there isn't, but it's also that their incentives are very different in one area to another. Actually, it's a very important point. I, I think Australia, particularly the public service and the economics profession, particularly the business economists, financial journalists, economic journalists, have really been in a cave on this way of thinking. I was one of two Australians speaking at a big interagency meeting that the Clinton administration held before Kyoto, where agencies listened to a, a series of experts about different policy approaches on how Kyoto um, could become a feasible thing for the US to sign up to. And back then, there was a very clear acknowledgement that innovation and technological change was going to be a big part of the story. In fact, I can remember Bill Clinton giving a speech saying, every time we propose new pollution controls, there's all this doom and gloom from industry. But we've proceeded and we've seen innovation and the air is cleaner than it's uh, been for, for a long time and the economy is stronger than it's been. And of course, there's a lot of lobbying and, and bogus studies, the Industries That Don't Want to Change Fund. But I really have to blame a lot of the economic analysis that's been done in Australia because even back then, there was an acknowledgement that economic modelling had to take into account technological change and innovation. In Australia, we had this mindset that the economy is like mining coal. You dig the cheapest coal first and then it always gets more expensive because you're getting the lower grade coal and it's a world of increasing costs. That's not how manufacturing, for example, works. We've known since Henry Ford's T-Model Ford that you can get declining costs, increasing returns. Every doubling of cumulative production 
of the T-model Ford saw something like a 15% cut in uh, uh, per unit cost. We've vastly beaten that with the solar um, energy with photovoltaic technology. We're doing it with wind. And I remember I came back to Australia and I was in uh, the cabinet office and the New South Wales Treasury produced this study saying it was shock horror. The, the early renewable energy target John Howard had established, very modest one, they were opposing, even though we had a progressive premier who initiated some of the earliest policies on climate change in Australia, his own treasury, was saying, this is terrible, it's economically disastrous. And you looked at their modelling and the cost of renewables never got cheaper. The whole point of the policy was to drive down costs. But what's important to understand is that government's role is quite uh, significant in all of this. And this is where I think our technology, not taxes slogan is, is so silly and so misrepresenting of uh, what we're doing in Australia, because actually our technology policies are very weak and actually there's no lack of taxes. They're just taxes on the wrong people for spending on the wrong things. But why do I say that technology policies are weak? Government has quite a key role in driving this innovation. Prices are one example. Right back to air pollution from cars, we went into the first phase of cleaning up cars with catalytic converters because the US EPA set what was called a technology forcing standard. They said that by a certain date, you will have to meet these standards for reducing emissions of the major pollutants. And we got catalytic converters. Australia was then way behind. It took the RAND government to say to Canberra, we're going to require this and to force Australia into adopting these things much, much later than other parts of the world. Just as today, strangely, we're the only country amongst major economies that doesn't have mandatory standards for fuel efficiency and greenhouse emissions from motor vehicles even though we don't have a car industry anymore. So when you talk about technology, not tax as well, a good technology policy has what we call technology push, things like helping develop roadmaps for technology development jointly with industry and spending on demonstration projects, all that kind of thing. We do some of that, not as much as most countries, but we do some of that. But you also need what's called market pull, and that includes things like a carbon price or these technology forcing standards. But the mandatory renewable energy standard was a market pull. You required a certain amount of the electricity sold by electricity retailers to be renewables, and it worked. But also, it's not just the raw technology it's, it's the changes in the markets and the corporate structures and the financing mechanisms and what the mandatory renewable energy target did. It drove down not just the cost of electricity, not just helping as you know, part of the global effort in, in driving those technologies down the cost curve, but also in learning how to do projects here in Australia better, how to finance them 
financiers become more comfortable with that kind of investment and the cost of capital comes down. There's all sorts of ways in which by setting these sorts of policies that provide a market pull, you drive down costs and we've seen it in electricity. We need to start doing it in other sectors, starting with transport, but also I would argue industry. You talked a little bit about the taxes. We've got a lot of taxes, but they're not in the right areas. Can you just pick one or two examples of that from your perspective that are really important to understand? We're just using our existing range of taxing mechanisms to fund paying emitters through the Emissions Reduction Fund, where we've got a whole lot of individual projects like funding a gas-fired power plant in New South Wales, funding gas exploration and pipelines and things in the Northern Territory. We have a number of programs because we're losing refineries to prop up the oil industry. We've been a laggard in oil security under the International Energy Agency. Countries decades ago agreed to keep a certain supply of petroleum to deal with supply disruptions, and Australia's been a laggard in doing that. That should be a cost borne by the people who use petroleum, but we're putting that burden on ordinary taxpayers. We have exemptions from the fuel excise for trucks, mines and other areas, so they pay a much less tax. We raise less revenue, whereas it would be better to be restructuring those things, provide us incentive to move to a low emission future. So there's all sorts of ways in which the existing taxing system is seeing revenues used for purposes that are not helping us become a high-tech, low-emission economy of the future. I'm just wondering now, in one of your pieces of research that I came across, you talked a lot about the opportunity for Australia to rethink its aluminium and steel industries. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, look, I'm not a technical expert on those particular industrial processes. The context in which I spoke about that was, of course, the reaction to the European proposed border adjustment, which said that this was protectionist and would affect Australian industry. And as I said before, it's not protectionist, it's actually just levelling the playing field between exports and local production. But what I went on to say was that this is actually a real opportunity for Australia. If we are to grasp the future in industries like that, border adjustment would help us because we would find that in our export markets, we wouldn't suffer if border adjustments became commonplace. We wouldn't suffer by bearing the early costs of moving to low emission production in those sorts of industries. Now, in aluminium, it's probably nearer term than steel. And indeed, in the last few weeks, we've heard that a large smelter in New South Wales is uh, proposing to shift its electricity supply to renewable energy. And as renewable power is becoming the cheapest source of power. That just makes sense. Now, of course, the majority of the emissions associated with an aluminium production are in, indeed in the power plants that supply aluminium. So that's a path 
that we can take. Now, the other thing, of course, is that there's the opportunity with aluminium to, in a sense, act as a battery. With existing technology, there's a limited ability to stop production when there's a peak demand on the grid. But the technology can um, make that more doable. And in a sense, you can operate just as is proposed for hydrogen, actually, hydrogen electrolyzers, you operate mainly when the electricity is cheap and you dial it down when um, everyone is coming home and cranking up their houses and demand for power goes up. And so that's another strategy with aluminium, that they actually get paid to time their production and to avoid peak demand periods. With steel, we've heard a lot about hydrogen, and I'm no expert on that, but I just note that it is a priority in the government's technology strategy. But Sweden, there's even the first deliveries of uh, steel made with hydrogen, small amounts, uh, but in a cooperative venture there involving the Swedish government as well as the utilities and the steelmakers there. And I just think there's a much more proactive role for government in, in bringing these sorts of things forward. But what I wanted to mention, which I'd said in the paper, is we also should be looking at new opportunities. And the International Energy Agency put out a very interesting report earlier this year about what it calls the energy transition minerals. And these are a range of minerals that are going to be in much higher demand in the world as the world transitions to a net zero economy. And a lot of this is, it's not just electric vehicles um, uh, and batteries, but it's also electrifying housing, electrifying industry. So much of the pathway to a low carbon future involves replacing the direct use of fossil fuels with electricity. And electric vehicles are just one example. We won't need a gas distribution system for housing because heating your houses, heating your water, cooking, it all can be done better and cheaper with electricity. So we're going to need a lot more minerals like copper even as we electrify. Now, Australia happens to have excellent resources of many of these minerals. We're not good at the downstream processing. We've never really had a serious national effort, except for a brief period that took us into aluminium in the um, early 80s. But we have great opportunities. And what's so critical here is that China dominates processing quite a few of these energy transition minerals. The processing is particularly dominated by China. And what the uh, International Energy Agency is pointing out is that this is an issue potentially as serious as the dependency on a small number of Middle Eastern countries for oil supply and the price risks associated with that, not to mention the actual security risks. And so there's going to be a lot of interest in the world in diversifying supply away from China towards countries like Australia, where there's not only the minerals, but the cheap renewable energy to process these minerals in a low carbon way. I think you can be very uh, confident that 
whether it's lithium for, for batteries for electric cars, nickel for those batteries or whatever. People, and I'm talking about companies, I'm talking about the governments, when they're promoting these new industries, they're going to want them to be clean from the beginning. And so this is a massive opportunity for Australia. There's a bit of an acknowledgement of it at the federal level in Australia, but there's not a strategy. There's not a comprehensive technology-based approach that uses market pull as well as technology push. You may have already answered this question, but I'm interested, given your years of experience in policy, if you were Prime Minister for a day and you had the opportunity to to put in place two policies, what would the two be that you would pick that would you know have the kind of biggest impact from your perspective around supporting Australia to safeguard its environment and economy? Okay, Look, let me be a bit brave here. And let's hope that I'd be Prime Minister still the next day. Uh, look, I, I do think we need to revisit carbon pricing. I don't think a sector-by-sector sector approach will be enough, although we do need it. And so I think we need to explore different ways of getting past the political blocks for carbon pricing. One idea that's had a lot of interest in the US is what's called the carbon tax with a dividend to households and then a border adjustment to deal with the competitiveness issues. So the idea is that much of the revenue raised from the carbon price goes back to households by way of a very transparent payment. So it's not just a, a tax reduction that comes at the end of the year, but it's something you see. And it should be redistributed in a way that's progressive. You could even make it taxable so that it's not a giveaway to, to the wealthy. The second one is uh, more policy nerd, uh, approach, and that is I would really totally shake up the way we think about the economy and the tools we use so that we did see a, a bigger role for government. We need to actually to make this transition work, spend a lot of money on infrastructure. We need to be driving these technology changes. We need to be making life more secure for families. We need to be investing in early child education. Uh, we need to be investing in our health systems. And inevitably that will involve some more government taxes and spending but we'll be better off for it and we'll be freer for it. And so I think that's the other shift that's going to be needed. And in some ways, you'll see that shift elsewhere in the world. But both major parties in Australia are a bit, bit stuck in thinking deficits are an evil. The big evil at the moment is that the ecological deficit that we're leaving for our children and their children with climate change. It won't matter what the public deficit is if we don't get on top of this problem. If we lose all our forests, we lose the barrier reef. If our health keeps declining. There's a third attitudinal thing too. The economy needs to be our servant, not our master. And so I think we need to, to have some leadership 
on how we think about some of these kind of issues. Some prices might go up. What actually that means is if we do pay a bit more for steel, because we're using hydrogen and it ultimately doesn't end up costing less than using coke and coal, then so be it, we'll adjust. We adjust to changes in relative prices all the time. And I'm hoping that we'll think a little bit differently about how we organise ourselves when we get through COVID. And we need to start thinking about a future that is, I think, more grounded, healthier, values human relations more, and puts into perspective what the economy is there for. It's there to support a, a better way of life. Prosperity is not just having lots of stuff to consume. That's a really lovely phrasing. The economy is there to support a better way of life. Any final thoughts from you for people who might be new to thinking about climate change, about what's the best way to support Australia moving in a direction that's going to protect our future? What are the things that, as individuals, they should be doing? I think for all of us, it starts with having conversations with the people around us and make it personal. What research does show is that people listen to their friends and they listen to their relatives. And if you have respectful conversations and you translate this into personal stories, anyone who's been through the bushfires, I think, has stories to tell. Yeah, thank you. Lots of really interesting and, and food for thought uh, kind of comments and observations. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you across such a wide range of experiences. And thank you for all that you've done and, and are doing to continue to help Australia protect our future. Thank you. It's been a delight to, to speak with you, Liana. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.